Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 14. We're going to look at the first rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, assuming there were two rejections there, which I will assume that. The first 13 verses of Luke talked about his temptation. Now, lots happened between the temptation of Jesus in the deserts around Jerusalem and the Jordan River and his return to Galilee, which which is happening here as he goes back up to Nazareth. So I am going to read you the events, all that have happened that Luke leaves out. Most of it's in the book of John, and thank God for John, the non-synoptic gospel, because he tells us a lot of stuff that went on that we wouldn't know otherwise. So let me start here. I'm just going to read the headings in Robertson's Harmony. Here's what happened between the end of the temptation of Jesus and his arrival in Galilee. What happened between Luke chapter 4.13 and Luke 4.14. First, the testimony of John the Baptist to the committee of the Sanhedrin about who Jesus was. Second, John's identification of Jesus as the Messiah at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Third, Jesus makes his first disciples at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Next, Jesus works his first miracle at Cana in Galilee. Jesus makes his first sojourn at Capernaum, accompanied by his kindred and his early disciples. In other words, what we're going to look at here in Luke is his second trip up to Capernaum. He made a a short trip up there beforehand. Then he's going to return to Jerusalem and have the first cleansing of the temple at the Passover in Jerusalem. This is probably A.D. 27. And then we have the interview of Nicodemus with Jesus. Jesus telling him, you must be born again. This is at Jerusalem doing the Passover. Then we've got the parallel ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist, with John the Baptist showing extreme loyalty to Jesus in the face of his disciples' doubt. And then we have Jesus leaving Judea, mainly when Herod arrested John and put him in jail. And then Jesus heads up to Capernaum. Now, in the parallel passages to Luke 4:14, we have this extra detail in Mark and Matthew. Mark and Matthew both say this: after John was delivered up, Jesus came into Galilee. So that gives us a time marker that when Jesus, when John got arrested, Jesus heads up and starts his great Galilean ministry. On the way up to Capernaum, he stops in Samaria, where he has the incident with the Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar, which is near Mount Ebal. And then he finally arrives in Galilee. Now, this great Galilean ministry, according to Robertson, started in AD 27, probably in the autumn of AD 27, and went to the spring of 29. Now, I like those dates the best, but, you know, some people say Jesus died in 33 and not in 30. And I'm not sure which, I'm trying to think how Robertson, which dating scheme he takes. I think he has the 80-30 there, the spring of 29. He's still got another year. He's already been working for about a year, and this is a year and a half. That's two and a half years, another half year, a year, and he's going to be killed about 80-30. So I, I like these dates better because it makes a nice round number between 80-30 and 80-70. Forty years, one generation shall pass away, shall not pass away before all these things take place, the destruction of the temple. All right, so let's start here in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. We have Jesus who is apparently stopped in Capernaum on his way to Nazareth. Luke 4.14 Luke 4, says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, 
and a fame went out concerning him through all the regions round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. So he had gone back to Capernaum, and he'd done a bunch of miracles there because he was in the power of the Spirit. That means miracles. Mark tells us he was preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the kingdom, believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says the same thing. So he's already done some ministry there, and then he leaves Capernaum and hops down to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, before he gets there, there's a healing of a nobleman's son at Capernaum, which is recorded in John 4, 46 through 54, which we, not, we're not, we won't take up till we get to the book of John, but just to tell you. So here's what we have. We have Jesus going to Capernaum after going through Samaria and dealing with a Samaritan woman. He goes to Capernaum and does all kinds of miracles, glorifying God. One of those miracles was the healing of the nobleman's son, and that miracle was, rec was recorded in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Then he leaves Capernaum and goes to Nazareth. Now, people debate whether there were two trips to Nazareth. I'm going to take the two-trip view, but that's because what's, that's what Robertson takes, and that's who I'm using. So we're going to take the two-trip, the two, the two trips to Nazareth view, where Jesus was rejected twice at Nazareth. This is recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 31. There are no parallel passages. So this will be fairly easy. Now, let's back up again and look at verses 14 and 15 again. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and he began to teach in their synagogues. He was filled in the power of the Spirit. Now, he had been prepared for this. He was full of the Spirit. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit at the River Jordan in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. He went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit in Luke 4, verse 1, in order to be tempted of the devil and to overcome the devil's temptation. So he was full of the Spirit, and he was full of the Word, because we know at the age of 12 he knew the Bible backwards and forwards, the Hebrew Scriptures. He studied for 18 years after that, and when he fought the devil in the wilderness, he quoted the Scripture at him constantly, one after the other. So here we have Jesus ready to start on his ministry, he'd, and he'd already ministered down in Judea, of course, in Perea which is not recorded in Luke, it's recorded in John, but he had done, he'd already, so he's got some experience under his belt now. He's got the Holy Spirit, he's got the Scripture, and he's got experience. Now, what kind of example would that be for us before we go out trying to spread the kingdom? Maybe we ought to learn about getting filled with the Holy Spirit, getting filled with the Scripture, and getting some experience, maybe on a smaller scale, before we, before we, before we launch out on, into grander schemes. Now, he was praised says a praise. He was praised by everyone in verse 15 of Luke chapter 4. At this early stage of his ministry, he had no opposition. Now, at the end of his life, when he was on the cross, of course, everybody's yelling, crucify him. Jesus never did anything just to seek favor and popularity. He constantly preached the truth. And we're going to see that in this episode down in Nazareth. He made himself very unpopular down there. So he was popular in Capernaum, but he was not popular in Nazareth. His, population, his popularity was not determined by what he spoke, by what he taught. His popularity was determined by the people that listened to him. If they were favorable and had good hearts, well, then he was praised. But if they had hard hearts, hearts of stone, with no faith, then he was damned. So, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, coming from Capernaum, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, Apparently, he had been going to the synagogue every Saturday as he grew up in Nazareth because that was his custom, it says, Luke says. He stood up to read. Now, in a normal synagogue service, there was a reading from one of the prophets, and then there was a sermon. 
and the sermon was often given by a learned visitor, quote-unquote, a learned visitor, and so Jesus was the learned visitor this time in his hometown. He gets, stands up to read. They, they would stand up to read the scriptures. Verses 17 through 19 in Luke chapter 4, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And so verse 18 starts the quote that Jesus reads from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that me in Isaiah is referring to the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is a classic Messianic scripture here. And when it says that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed Jesus, anointed me, meaning the Messiah, anointing is the common symbol of the Holy Spirit. You anoint a prophet, you anoint a priest, and you anoint a king. And the Holy Spirit is behind the establishment of all three of those ministries. If you want a prophet, you need to be anointed to the Holy Spirit. And, of course, you, you anoint a king, you anoint him with oil. And also the prophets were anointed, too, in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king, they were all anointed. Now, once again, we notice that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. I've already mentioned this once. I'll mention it again. This is the third time that Jesus was baptized, that the Holy Spirit is mentioned as working with Jesus since Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit in Luke 3, verse 23. So that baptism of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 3 is the first time. Luke 4, 1, and Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's the second time when he was led by the Spirit to be tempted. And now here's the third time. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. That's three times. And now here in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And the first thing that Isaiah says is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus is going to proclaim release to the captives of course that's captives to sin as well as poverty and sickness too for that matter recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor well what's the year of the Lord's favor that was a special phrase that referred to the year of Jubilee that's an Old Testament institution we can see that in Leviticus chapter 25 verse 10 here's how it works the Jewish calendar was arranged in sevens every seventh day was a Sabbath day and of course Sabbath means rest that was the day when the people rested to honor the fact that God had rested on the seventh day after the six days of creation now every seventh year was a Sabbath year no crops were planted that was in order to let the land rest now after seven Sabbath years that would be 49 years you had another extra Sabbath year so you had a double Sabbath. You had one at year 49, at the end of that seventh seventh. And then you, for the 50th year, you had another Sabbath year. So that was a double Sabbath. And that second Sabbath year was called the Jubilee year. We get that word Jubilee in our English language. We're having a Jubilee means we're having a party. The land rested on that second Sabbath year, on that Jubilee year, just as it did on the 49th year. But in the Jubilee year, something special happened. All debts were forgiven. All who were enslaved to another for debt were, were released. All who owed money were released from their debts. The Jubilee year was a perfect symbol for Christians' freedom from bondage. There, were, there would be no more slavery to sin, and we rest from our labors. And so that's what Jesus is getting ready to preach. Great symbolism from the Old Testament. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 20, And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Why did Jesus sit down? He didn't sit down because he was finished. He was sitting down because he was getting ready to teach, because that's what rabbis did back then. They sat down. They stood up to read the scripture, and they sat down to teach. And as he sat down to teach, and probably to answer questions, it was interactive probably, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Now, why would everybody be staring at Jesus? Because I'll tell you why. Because they knew that he had just claimed to be the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach liberty to the captives. He was talking about himself. That's a bodacious claim. In fact, a lot of Pharisees would think that's a blasphemous claim. But his claim was so obvious that everybody, I'm sure, was holding their breath and they were a little bit tense. This guy is claiming to be the Messiah. Chapter 20, chapter 4, verse 21 in Luke. Then he began to say to them, Jesus, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, Jesus made it official. What they were all thinking, he said it. Hey, Isaiah's been fulfilled. I'm the Messiah. Now today doesn't mean this 24-hour period. It means right now at this time when Jesus is, the time of Jesus his life fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. It doesn't mean this, this particular 24-hour period. At this current time, the scripture has been fulfilled. Now, there's been a lot of stuff, as I mentioned earlier, that's already happened in Galilee, like up at Capernaum. There have been healings and exorcisms and so forth. The healing of the nobleman's son is recorded in, recorded in the Gospel of John. And those healings and so forth, of course, would fulfill what was said in Isaiah's prophecy sight to the blind and so forth, to let the oppressed go free. We go to verse 21 of Luke chapter 4. Then he began to say, oh, I just read that one, excuse me. Let's go to Luke chapter 4, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Now you notice everybody's happy with him now because he's, he's teaching so good. And when they said, is this not Joseph's son, what they were saying was, Hey, we know Joseph. He's a carpenter. He's a hometown carpenter. Nazareth's a small town. We know Joseph, and we know his son. And this is his son. How did a carpenter's son get to be such a hotshot rabbi? They couldn't believe a simple carpenter's son with no rabbinic education could speak like this. They knew him before simply as a boy who had grown up in their hometown. And as I said, Jesus was not one to curry favor with the crowd. He says in verse 23 of Luke chapter 4, He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do also here in your hometown the things which we've heard you did at Capernaum. Now this is interesting to me, is why would Jesus get in their face here? Because everybody's speaking well of him and his teaching. But I think what happened when they started saying, is this, Joseph, is this not Joseph's son? They were starting to put him back down as just a carpenter and not the Messiah. And I think Jesus picked up on that. So that's why he says, okay, guys. The next thing you're going to do is quote, quote me this proverb, Dr. Q, yourself. Now, what that proverb means, of course, is is you, you say you're doing miracles. Well, it, like a doctor would say, hey, I can cure you, cure you, and then the doctor gets sick and, and he can't cure himself. And so you tell the doctor, well, if you heal everybody else, why don't you heal yourself? Likewise, Jesus has done miracles. He's done miracles everywhere in, in other places. Why can't you do miracles here? And that's basically, it explains that in the last part of the verse. Jesus continues on and tells the Nazarenes, And you will say, Do also here in your hometown the things which we have heard you 
the things which we have heard you do at the things which we have heard that you did at Capernaum. So Jesus is he's anticipating their attitude. He's making explicit their attitude, their attitude that he's just a little boy. He's just a hometown boy. He's not a big rabbi. He's not the Messiah. So they liked his teaching, in it, but they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Now, the people of Nazareth are not showing faith in Jesus here. They're looking for a messianic sign. When Jesus claimed to be a Messiah, there were only a few miracles that could be considered messianic by the rabbis. For example, the sky splits open. I think healing of a blind person was messianic. Healing of a leper was messianic. I'm not sure whether Jesus had done those big ones yet. And if he had, maybe they hadn't heard about it. I don't know. But at any rate, they were looking for something big. They weren't believing in Jesus. They're looking for the big sign, the big one. And Jesus never gave people signs if those people were asking in unbelief. They're really testing Jesus. They're saying, look, if such power resides in you to cure the ills of humanity, why has none of it yet come near home? And why is all this alleged power reserved for strangers? Apparently, their pride was wounded that Jesus was doing miracles in Capernaum. Jesus had only done a few private miracles in Nazareth, apparently, but not many because of their unbelief. It says that, I believe that was in the other passage, Matthew 13, Mark 6 passage about Nazareth. And again, this whole issue is complicated a little bit because some people say there was only one visit to Nazareth and some people say there were two. But at any rate, the people in Nazareth were not believing in Jesus. We go to verse 24 in Luke 4. And he, Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. A prophet without honor. Now this, of course, is a famous proverb that we use all the time. It's just like our saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus had become too common to the inhabitants of Nazareth, his hometown. They couldn't conceive of him as anything more than a carpenter's son. So we go to verse 25, 26, and 27. Jesus says this, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Zarephath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now that might seem a little strange, but it's not when you think about the geography here. And there's two Old Testament stories that the people of Nazareth would know. The first is, when Elijah took care of the widow of Zarephath, the cruise of oil that never expired and so forth, raised the widow's son from the dead, that widow was not a Jew. She was from Zarephath, a city of Sidon. And Sidon was a Gentile city up on the Lebanese coast up there, the Phoenician coast. And Jesus' point was is that there were plenty of widows that, plenty of Jewish widows that Elijah could have taken care of but he took care of a gentile an outsider and likewise with elisha elisha healed naaman who was a syrian which of course a syrian is not a jew he's an outsider he's a gentile and the point is is that god is not concerned about where you're from what your hometown is what your home country is in the case of the widow of zarephath or naaman the syrian or in the case of the nazarenes he's not concerned about the fact that it's their hometown He's concerned about their attitude, their faith. And, of course, the widow, the widow of Zarephath had great faith, and so did Naaman the Syrian. So, God chose to do his work in a land outside of Israel, just like he could choose to do miracles outside of Nazareth. 
He worked in Zarephath in Syria because of those two Gentiles' faith, the widow and Naaman the Syrian, the general, because they believed. And that was something the Nazarenes were not showing a bit of. Let's go to Luke chapter 4, verse 28. When they heard this, they, the Nazarenes, heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Well, that's how you win friends and influence people. You confront them with their lack of faith, and they go crazy. Remember, they, before they were saying they were all speaking favorably, all spoke well of him, and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his mouth in verse 22. And now we go down to verse 28, and they're all filled with rage. So Jesus ticked them off. He knew what their attitude was. The Jews of Nazareth were angry about three things. Their request for a miracle was denied. Jesus said that God loved Gentiles too, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. And remember, Jews thought the Gentiles were dogs outside the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus is claiming that God ministered to them but didn't minister to Jews inside the kingdom when, he, when his prophets could have done so. And Jesus implied strongly that there was something wrong with these Jews of Nazareth. And there was. That allows the attitude. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe in Jesus. They just thought he was a hometown boy. So Jesus, just like John the Baptist, was not an ear tickler. He had taken a crowd that was entirely favorable to him and enraged them. He told them the truth they needed to hear. Unlike the majority of wussy puss evangelicals today in America who are scared to say anything about uh, the current distress that we're in under. Luke chapter 4, verse 29 through 30. They, the people of Nazareth, in the synagogue, got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. They were pretty angry, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way, and Jesus escaped. Now, getting thrown off a cliff was not all they had in mind. You get thrown off the cliff, and then the, if you survive the fall, then they would drop stones on you. That's the way that Jews executed people. But these executions were supposed to be done after a trial with due process of law. There was no trial here. There was an angry mob getting ready to kill him. Now, the question is, is how did Jesus escape that angry mob? Which he did. Here's some options that I've culled from the commentaries. One option is he used supernatural strength to break through the crowd. Now, he could do that, just like he said that he could call down a legion of angels to pull himself off, to, to deliver him off the cross near the end of his ministry. He could do that. He could always appeal to his divine power. But Jesus normally didn't do that. He had emptied himself of his divine power. And every now and then you can see where he used it in the Gospels. But generally he didn't. He, but he could have here to keep from getting killed prematurely. So that's, I think that's a viable option. Some people said he became invisible. I don't believe that. If he became invisible, I think that people would think, hey, this guy's the Messiah. But they didn't seem to think he was the Messiah. Some people say he changed form. Well, even if he changed form, he's still standing right there. I don't see how that would help him get out, uh, escape the crowd. Some people say God blinded their eyes so they all became blind. I would think that if God had done that, Luke would have recorded it. Some people say that God, some people speculate that God bound their hands. Well, I think Luke would have said that too. Here's an idea. Maybe perhaps God filled them with confusion because as they got, they might have had second thoughts about killing a rabbi without due process of law. And as they got him up there on the cliff, they started thinking, you know, we could get in a lot of trouble for this, killing somebody. Because remember now, this was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is not when Jesus had enemies all over the, the ruling bodies of Israel. That's my speculation as to what, why they changed their mind. That's how he got out. They just changed their mind. He wasn't going to do it. Just like you see in these old Hollywood movies when they're about to be a lynch mob and somebody stands up, no, don't do that. 
Be reasonable. Be rational. So he left. Now, some people say that's the last time he ever was in Nazareth and he never returned. And some people say he came back and was rejected again. It's a harmony problem. We'll talk about that later. We'll take up the next audio starting in verse 31 where it says he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. He went back up to Capernaum. And we will do that in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 